It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where where men and women can be at their best. Everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We're here on KCAA in Southern California every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Pacific time. We've got a great show for you today. We've got two authors who are going to be on the show, and I think they have some information that's going to be very helpful to us. One is going to talk about how we kind of can wrestle with and defeat our addiction to sugar. And the other has written a uh, book about uh, the Caribbean, a book of murder, beauty, intrigue, that has a lot to do with uh, how important it is to kind of preserve our oceans and our uh, reefs. So, guys, guys, radio, uh, let me ask you a question to get started about our first guest. Were you aware that the average American consumes over 130 pounds of sugar every year. That's a lot of Skittles. Let me tell you, that's 1.7 million Skittles, if if you're doing the math. And everybody seems to wrestle with sugar. It's hidden in so many different foods under so many different names. And when we all talk about, you know, gaining weight, putting on a little blubber around the belly or the thighs or whatever, it always seems to be sugar comes up in the conversation. And we're always trying to find ways to eliminate sugar from our diets. So we've got a great guest for you. Her name is her name is Rena Greenberg and she's written a book called Easy Sugar Breakup: Break the Habits and Addictions That Control You. She's going to be our first guest and she's also going to talk a little bit about uh, cannabis and uh, CBD oil, which is an area that I don't know too much about, so hopefully we can learn together. Our second guest, uh, his name is Fred Waitskin. He's the author of uh, that famous book Searching for Bobby Fisher. And which became a movie back in the 90s, and it's about his son, actually, who uh, was a chess prodigy. He's written a new book about the Caribbean uh, called Deep Water Blues, and he tackles uh, murder, intrigue, the beauty of some of the islands uh, around the Bahamas, and also uh, what's happening to some of the beaches there and uh, how important it is to protect our reefs, to protect our ocean, were you aware that there's 18 billion pounds of plastic floating around in the ocean and there is a garbage pile floating around the Pacific that is actually the size of Texas? So protecting our oceans is very important, as we all know. So we've got a great show for you this evening. Two guests. Um, really looking forward to it. I, uh, let's start talking about sugar a little bit. Um, last year, I put myself on a diet called the process of elimination diet. I may have mentioned it once or twice on the show, but basically what I did was I gave up something every week for 52 weeks. And I started with alcohol because it's sugar based. And then I just followed my cravings and I found like the first two months, everything I gave up, whether it was cookies, ice cream, candy, cake, pie, was sugar, had sugar in it for predominantly sugar. And it made a big difference uh, over that time frame and over the year because by the end of the year, I did not crave sugar. Now, I kind of went back to my old ways this year, but now I have a lot more self-knowledge about, okay, what do I need to cut out? How do I cut out? How do I cut it out? And when should I cut it out? So now uh, we're, we're approaching, the, we're at the midpoint of the year. I'm going back on my processed diet, and we'll see how that goes. But Skies Guys Radio, KCAA. And our special guests are Rena Greenberg and Fred Waitskin. As I mentioned, we have some special guests today. We're going to speak with Rena Greenberg. Uh, her success with weight loss hypnosis 
and self-hypnosis has been featured in 150-plus news stories, including USA Today, Women's World Magazine, The Doctor Show, CNN, Fox TV, Good Morning America, all over the place, including her own show on PBS. She recently launched Rena's Organic, a line of medical-grade CBD products, and I want to talk to her about that also, to assist people in eliminating pain, reducing anxiety, improving sleep, living at a healthy weight, and achieving peak wellness. But today we're going to talk about sugar, and she's going to teach us how to use breathing techniques, NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming, cognitive reconditioning, movement, self-hypnosis, relaxation, and imagery as tools to increase first most, foremost rather, uh, self-love, self-care, and self-respect. And this will give you the ability to harness the power of your subconscious mind to connect to the greatest spiritual strength with life-changing results. So welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Rena Greenberg. Thank you, Robert. Well, I'm so glad you're here because, um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I went through a program last year. I called it my process of elimination diet, and I'm working on my own book on that. And basically what I did was every week for uh, 52 weeks, I gave up something, uh, either a food or a beverage, and I started with alcohol. And then I followed my, um, my cravings, and I noticed that for the first couple of months, every one of the cravings was sugar-based. So I went from alcohol, I gave up alcohol, then I gave up cookies, ice cream, candy, cake, pie, soda, etc. What is it about sugar, Rena, that hooks us the way it does? Mm, yeah, that's great. Well, first of all, congratulations on doing this elimination program. That's so awesome. And uh, honestly, that's the way I did it, too. And that's how I really started my program by realizing, you know, at first you think, okay, I'll just give up, you know, alcohol or pies or something like that. And then you start to realize it all falls under that umbrella of sugar. And it's amazing that there are, you know, receptors in the brain. It's like, and, you know, now finally the science is backing it up that they're like opioid receptors, but they're sugar, you know, they, they, they are sugar receptors and what happens is the more you have sugar of any type, so you can really just go from one thing to another, one form of sugar to another, you know, alcohol, cookies, whatever it is. And what happens is the more you have it in your system, this really increases the desire because of these cells in the brain that then they start screaming for more. And mm-hmm. so elimination is the way to go. And it's just fantastic. You know, that's, that's, a, that's very, you know, I'm, I'm so, that's very validating because what happened with me at least, and then, you know, it's not, this is not about me, this is about your program, but having gone through kind of the process in, in my own way, when my craving, over time, um, by only by elimination did my cravings subside. So can you continue a little bit more on that, Rena, about why is it that when the sugar gets in our system, like why is it bad for us? What does it do when it gets inside of us? And then what are the keys to kind of making a move to get it out of our system? Yeah, well, really what happens is it's all about really blood sugar. And the goal is to keep the blood sugar steady. Mm-hmm. And and so what happens is when we eat sugar immediately, you know, we almost can become euphoric. I mean, it gives us that buzz. That's what we're craving because we're always seeking that, you know, human beings are always seeking that kind of that bliss, that euphoria, those good feelings. But unfortunately, these are really fake good feelings because what happens is, yeah, you feel great for a moment. And then what happens is this blood sugar spikes. So, yes, it goes up, it peaks up and then boom, it plummets down because what happens is 
The pancreas then produces more insulin, which whisks away the blood sugar out of the bloodstream. And now all of a sudden you're physically craving more. I mean, you can even get the shakes. You know, you, it's like, it really is an addiction and it just sets us up. And the food industry and the advertising industry is right there alongside. I always say they're hypnotizing us, you know, to create that desire for more. And if we and, and, and then we fall into that horrible cycle of addiction. And, but the key is just like you said, and I discovered it myself decades ago, which was what you know inspired me to create this program that I was able then to reach thousands of people because I realized for myself, I mean, I was such a huge sugar addict. And I went, just like you, I went from alcohol, ice cream, bagels, pizza, everything. And I realized that when you stop eating these foods and you start to eat more in balance, so I'm not saying no carb by any means, but you know, just the right carbs and the, mm. and the right weight and the right balance, you, these, these cravings are eliminated and you don't even think about these foods anymore. And that's why my book's called Easy Sugar Breakup. It's just literally like, like getting over the X. You don't care anymore. You're done and you're over it. And that really is freedom. Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of sugar, broad stroke. So sugar is not just the white refined sugar, even though that's not really good at all for us. So talk to us about the different types of sugar, the, the hidden sugars under different ingredients and um, things like the simple carbohydrates um, that, that turn into sugar in the bloodstream. Like a lot of our listeners are, are, are aware of it or becoming more aware of it. Uh, I think people are now, uh, they, they get it, that sugar is not, uh, not our friend. But just if you could kind of just simplify that for everybody so people know what to look for. Yeah, well, that, those are great questions, and it all has to do with how complex uh, a, mal- a molecule really is. And I mean, in other words, are we eating complex carbohydrates or simple carbohydrates? So, in, a, in layman's terms, I mean, simple is sugar, and anything in an ingredient list sometimes is a, a box of some kind of processed food will even brag no sugar. But if you read the ingredients, there's plenty of things that end in OSE, which means glucose, mm-hmm. fructose. Maltose. So what happens there is that's all a form of sugar. And even for some people, the healthier sugars like agave and honey, it can still, for some people, have that effect of triggering the blood sugar. So what happens there is it triggers that spike that I was talking about earlier. But what we want to really feel good over the long run, so we want foods that nourish and sustain and that burn slowly. So the reason we don't want sugar is because it burns in the metabolism very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the reason why, look, the fact is our brain needs sugar, but the good news is everything turns into sugar. Ultimately, the question is how long does it take? So if you have a simple sugar, it's quickly, it goes into your bloodstream as sugar and then it leads and leaves you that feeling of, you know, hunger and you can get the shakes and all kinds of symptoms of low blood sugar. But when you eat a complex carbohydrate, like something with a multigrain or a root vegetable or even some kind of protein, ultimately it will also turn into sugar. So you don't have to worry that your brain isn't going to get enough sugar or glucose, but it's going to burn very, very slowly, even over hours of time. And that's a wonderful thing because then slowly you're getting that nourishment and that energy over time rather than very quickly. Okay, great answer. Um, You talk about hypnosis and I actually am a, uh, I have the credentials to be an advanced master uh, hypnotist and I've gone through all of the training for that, and I work on myself, and sometimes I work on other folks. But um, it's all about reframing the subconscious mind, and the subconscious mind is such a powerful tool. So you you break it down very easily into two key words. So 
I guess the steps are, and correct me if I'm wrong, that first an individual has to uh, come to terms with the fact that they have an issue with sugar, a little self-realization, and then they have to take the steps to start to uh, reframe their subconscious. They have to be the ones, the, the hypnotist, somebody like yourself, will, will enable them, but the individual has to, has to do the work. I noticed uh, when I became a non-smoker, it was like 30 years ago, and I went to a very good uh, hypnotherapist, and uh, she, she hypnotized me, and then I, I didn't touch those things that we light up for uh, about two months. And then I was out in an event and I thought I could turn it on and off. So I lit up and then I had to go back and do the whole thing again. And that's when I realized that the hypnotherapist or hypnotist can only do so much. The individual has to ultimately carry the ball and the burden with that. But, but that's a good thing. So talk to us about that, the responsibility of the individual, how somebody uh, can kind of face up to the fact that they, they need to do something, and, and these two key words to help the individual reframe their subconscious to get started. Yeah, that's great. Well, what a great experience with quitting smoking. And I have, I've been helping people to quit smoking and to lose weight uh, for decades. And, um, you know, the key is that, yes, number one, a person needs to be motivated. But I have to tell you, most people who come to me either to quit smoking or now mostly to lose weight, I mean, they've tried everything out there. So they're definitely motivated. They definitely want to lose weight. But the problem is their their whole way of approaching it is through diet, through restriction, you know, and, and forcing themselves and white knuckling it. And so what my program does is help a person really relax and one of the number one things that my clients say to me is, wow, this was actually easy. It was actually effortless. It doesn't have to be difficult because what I do with someone in hypnosis is help them to change their own self-image. So like in your story for the quitting smoking, originally you were successful in changing your image to be a permanent non-smoker. But then when you went back to that old situation, it was only two months into it. You know, it was like a trigger for you. You were in a situation that was a trigger. Right, and right. And, and so what I do is I give people reinforcement material because I'm such a believer in learning self-hypnosis so that every day you mm -hmm. reinforce this new self-image that, you know, I prefer healthy foods. You know, small portions satisfy me. The less I eat, the better I feel. And we really start to embrace this new self-image until we can be in the environment with old triggers and it just doesn't phase us anymore. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, I used to eat ice cream two or three times a day, and then I would even be with my kids, and they'd be eating ice cream, and it just wouldn't have any effect at all. When, mm -hmm. That's what I help people to do, to completely neutralize so they're not sucked into the old patterns. Okay, talk to us about the, the, the two words, because and instead, because part of your uh, reprogramming uh, uses those words in a very clever way, and I think effective way. Mm, thank you, yeah. You know, that is the number one thing, because... We have to, you know, in order to harness that motivation, despite all the obstacles in the environment, the people around us, our history, the voices in our head, we do need to harness that motivation as strongly as we can. And so the two words you're talking about is the why. You know, if you think about it in every area of our life, why do we even get up in the morning? We all have a why. Maybe we get up for our pets or our kids or because, you know, we feel we have to do some kind of service in the world or you know, whatever it is. And that's the because. So why do I want to not lose weight? Because a lot of times that feeling it's going to be hard. But why do I want to achieve permanent slenderness? Why do I want to look and feel my best? Why is this important to me? And we start to tune in. Wait, it's not because my mother's telling me to. It's not because my husband or wife is telling me to. 
It's because I am worthy. I deserve to look and feel my best. I want to feel young again. And I don't want to, you know, we move towards pleasure and away from pain. I don't want to end up, let's say, like my grandmother diabetic, you know, having to be pushed around in a wheelchair. I am not, I refuse. And so that's the because. And what do I want instead? I want to look and feel my best. I want to be happy. I want to be around people that I feel good around. I want to do work that's helping, you know, making a difference in the world. I want to do service. I want to be agile. I want to move my body like I did when I was a child. And we start to tune into, you know, like you're saying, the because and the instead. What does this mean to me and how am I going to achieve it? Yeah, that's interesting because when I was going through my sessions with my hypnotherapist, she said, "Why do you want to? Why do you want to stop? Become a non-smoker." We never said quit smoking or anything. It's always become a non in the positive. And uh, whatever she did, it worked so well because I don't, I can't even really say the word, um, as you've probably noticed. But um, she said, "Why do you want to stop?" I said, "Well, I really like to work out, so this is getting in the way. As long as it's, it makes my clothing stinky, and I like to have control over, you know, something. I don't want an outside influence like this that I know is not healthy, um, kind of commanding me. And uh, so, uh, I'm sure the hypnotherapist put something in, in in my reframed me that I would look at this as uh, an instead." You know, because everything we do when it comes to food, Rena, is you're going to eat. Basically, it comes down to you're going to eat every day, once a day, twice a day, three times a day, whatever. You're going to eat this or that. You're going to choose this or that, this or that. And I learned that so well last year. How do you uh, help individuals kind of stick to the program where they're making the right choices over and over again? Because it's, as you know, it's so easy to slide like, ah, I'll just have that slice of pizza or, oh, you know what, I'll have a beer. It's OK. And your friends, usually they, they know, they're, they're your friends, but they're not sensitized to the fact that you're going through this program. And, you know, it's a sometimes it's a tough road uh, to, 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 to be on because, you know, they're, they're having their drinks and their sliders and you, you're being very careful. Exactly. Right. So there's only one way to be successful with this, Robert, and that is to change the way you think about food subconsciously. Because if you're going to look at food the way you used to, you're, it's going to be really impossible when you get in those situations, like you said, social situations, and you feel all that pressure. But the only way to do it is when you change how you think about food subconsciously. And I hear this all the time from my clients. So they'll come to me and they'll be nervous. They'll say, you know, I have to wine and dine my clients. I, you know, I am always around food. Some people tell me I work, you know, my father owns a bakery, you know, all kinds of right, things. Sure. And, and so what we do in the hypnosis is actually reprogramming the mind. And that's the beauty of the subconscious mind. It's so powerful and it's so open and receptive to suggestion when you mm -hmm. put those suggestions in, in the proper way. And uh, it's really been scientifically proven that you can change how you think about food subconsciously. So you just don't want those foods that are harmful. And you actually look at food in a different way. You actually look at food and you think, how is this food going to make me feel? And that is your instantaneous thought. And it's really no effort anymore. So foods that used to look and taste good, they become unappealing. And then those healthy foods that maybe in the past you felt like, oh, I only would eat this if I'm on a diet. Actually, you begin to prefer food that helps you to feel lighter. So like you said, you can go work out, you can move your body, and you don't, you're really tuned into that horrible feeling when you overeat and you're, you just don't want to do that again. And it's like, it's like a new subconscious program in the mind. It's like um, for something like smoking, you would replace whatever pleasure you got out of smoking with 
doing something else like, oh, I'm going to live longer and I can spend more time with my kids or I can smoke. So the choice becomes easy with sugar and food. It's kind of similar. Do I want to fit into my dress? Do I want to, you know, look good at the beach? Do I want to feel better and have more energy versus do I want to go back and have that cookie and have that Haagen-Dazs or, or whatever? Not that there's anything wrong all the time with these foods, but we have a tendency, we get sucked in through the addiction and we just, uh, you know, people snack too much. Exactly. Right. We do get sucked in. And the great news is, is that we can, you know, once we create this new pattern, it's like a new way of being. It's sort of like when you get in your car, you might, and you were going from point A to point B, you might always go the same way every day. And that is just entrenched in your brain to make a mm-hmm. left, right, left. And when you start going in a new, you know, if they put a detour on that, and you start going in a new route, at first it feels uncomfortable, but soon the new route just feels like the new normal. And that's really what we're doing in hypnosis is replacing the old behavior with new behaviors. So as you said, all of a sudden, that priority of I want to fit into my clothes more comfortably, I want to look and feel my best, I want to go to the beach and be able to wear a bathing suit and feel proud of my body and feel ta- you know, feel good, feel confident. And then these become priorities. Not only, you know, it's not just something in our mind, an idea, but it actually becomes something that we're living, that we're feeling, that is real to us, that we're achieving by making better choices. Okay, to get started, what's the benefit of working with somebody, a coach like yourself, versus just reading the book? But if they want to just read the book and try some things on their own, how would you advise them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the book, that's why I, you know, just, I'm so excited about Easy Sugar Breakup. You know, I just... We just reissued the book. It's got a full chapter on sugar canceling recipes. As you said, also has a full chapter on the CBD oil, which can, you know, certain types of uh, products can really help with the addiction. And it has so many, it's filled with exercises and techniques to help people get started on their own. And that's available at amazon.com. And it's a great way to get started and begin to shift your mindset. But then, as you said, a lot of people discover that they really want that personal coaching, that personal assistance, and especially with something like hypnosis, because then the suggestions can be tailored exactly for each person in their own life situation, you know, which is what I do when I work with pers- people personally. And so I, I love working with people privately, and they certainly can reach out to me. And, and as I said, the benefit of that is that it is a really a personally tailored program, depending on a person's lifestyle their own obstacles, their own life situation, and their own personal goals. Okay. Our uh, special guest on Guys Guys Radio is Rena Greenberg. Forgive me, I did not mention the name of the book earlier in the show. It's Easy Sugar Breakup, Break the Habits and Addictions that Control You. It's a terrific book. It's got a lot of how-to information. Uh, it's very digestible, no pun intended book. It's a, it's a sweet read. And uh it also has a section on CBD oil and weight loss. So would you mind if we just shift to that for a few moments? Because um, I don't think many people really understand. It's getting more and more popular, but tell us about CBD. Why, what, it is, what is it? Why is it important? And how people can take it if you're ill or if you're not ill and you just want to promote your own wellness. Yeah, it's true. CBD is becoming more and more talked about, and yet so many people are even more and more confused about it. And actually, for good reason. You know, I had tried CBD myself actually two years ago uh, for my glaucoma. My glaucoma was, uh, which is actually just an increased pressure in the eye. And my eye doctor was telling me that, you know, things were going in the wrong direction. My eye pressures were going up, that I may need surgery, more medication, uh, which I didn't want either. So I was quite in a desperate situation. But 
having been someone that did struggle with addiction for so long, I really didn't want to take anything that could be psychoactive. And when I finally did the research and realized that CBD is not psychoactive, it will not make you high, but has can have so many medicinal benefits, I used it with great results for my glaucoma and had so many side benefits. It was helping me sleep. It was, I was feeling. How, how did you, how do, how do, how do you take it? Okay. Great question. Uh, so, well, the issue became, yeah. So how do you get good CBD? And um, I researched and saw that it was extremely confusing. There was so, so much marketing misinformation out there. So the number one thing to be aware of, first of all, is potency. And I saw that even doctors and chiropractors that were dispensing CBD, often there was no potency even on the label. Uh, that's a concern. Then there are the issues of is it full spectrum, which has the whole plant, all the cannabinoids, or is it just isolate, which is, you know, very isolated part. Um, you can take it. So the best ways to take it, there are tinctures. And I recommend a potency of at least 300. But if someone's in pain, then you can go even up to 1500 milligrams, definitely full spectrum. Again, because that's going to have all the medicinal components of the plant. And you would put a few drops under your tongue. Uh, and it works, can work very, very well. A couple of times I was in excruciating pain and took the tincture and it did amazingly well. Um, I never had planned to start my own line of CBD products, but I ended up doing so just because, again, I wanted to create a brand that people could really, really trust. Um, so, so as far as with weight loss, I actually created a product called CBD Super Cider. And what I did was I blended high quality, uh, full spectrum, Colorado grown. That's another important issue is that it be grown in the USA, that the seeds originate in the USA. So, you know, there are no pollutants, no contaminants, mm -hmm. since it's such a porous plant. And I combined that with seven other herbs, cannabinoid herbs. That's because the body has an endocannabinoid system that responds to these herbs. And actually 40 grams of these herbs in a bottle with it. So that really helps to uh, work synergistically with the CBD pure cherry concentrate and organic apple cider vinegar. And what these ingredients do together is they also, uh, they work to help balance the body. They can help, people are saying helps with pain, helps with sleep, but most importantly, what people are saying helps with just an overall feeling of well-being, uh, making it easier to choose healthier foods, to just feel more balanced. Great. Great answer. Thank you so much for that. Because there's so many people who are, are getting bombarded with information and are like, well, you know, is this pot? Is this, am I going to get high? How do I take it? Do I mix it with water? How do I know which one to take? So, and it's going to become more and more mainstream. So better that we learn about it now. Um, let's go back to the easy sugar breakup, uh, the core of that. If people want to get started, because we're running short on time, if people want to get started on their own, what's what are the keys, in your opinion, to uh, self-hypnosis and also some just steps that people can take to get themselves on the right track because often what happens when we go into weight loss programs it's that first week that's really difficult because your stomach needs to shrink a little bit you you know you go into some type of withdrawal uh, you just have a lot of issues it's so easy to just say the hell with it how can people kind of get started have the right self-talk and really move ahead so they're positioned for success Mm, great question. I would say the very first thing to do is to take a few moments and think about and then even write down because writing things down is so important. It, it really impresses uh, the what you're writing on the subconscious part of mind. So I would say write down a success story. 
how you want your life to be, what your life is going to be like when you drop whatever it is, 20, 30, 80 pounds, whatever it is that your, your goal is. And I, want, and I really want people to write down why this is important to them, the why. You know, so often we don't have clarity on that. And again, we don't even realize when we're acting automatically, let's say, you know what, I'm going to eat that ice cream cone. And you don't even realize that you're doing it as a rebellion towards mm-hmm. a parent or your spouse just because they, you might feel like they're nagging you. About you're nervous, sometimes nervous eating, right? Oh, anxiety, stress, and mm-hmm. happy. You know, as children, we were taught, clean your plate or, right. you know, or have some cookies and milk. You'll feel better. So you're going through stress and you tell yourself, you know what? I love myself. I'm going to reward myself now with this, you know, cookie. And then you have one cookie. You say, oh, I might as well finish the whole box. <laughs> I'll start mm-hmm. the diet Monday. But instead of beating yourself up because you're in these, you know, habits, these patterns, instead take a moment, grab a journal, and write down your new intention. My intention is to treat my body with love and respect. And here's why. And here's what my life is going to be like when I do that. And really paint that picture. Mm-hmm. The subconscious response to imagery. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a fantastic answer. I, I, I think uh, people don't realize, um, as both of us doing hypnosis, that hypnosis is actually very spiritual. And um, we really help people get in touch with themselves and do the work. But it's a spiritual practice. When I started training, people would say, are you going to make me cluck like a chicken? And I'm like, if you want to, I'll help you. But otherwise, no. <laughs> but I'll help you, you know, if you want to change some habits that are bothering you or whatever. But it, wouldn't you agree or would you agree, I don't want to be pejorative, that um, hypnosis is really a spiritual practice? Absolutely. I mean, especially, you know, I suppose, you know, like, yes, stage hypnosis is what it is. But, you yeah. know, it's entertainment. There's nothing wrong right. with entertainment. But absolutely, the way I do hypnosis it's a very, very spiritual thing because I am guiding people to the language of their soul, yep. to their heart, connecting to that inner voice of wisdom. You know, so often we're just listening to all the messages in the media that we're bombarded with every day. And instead we want to you know, go inside, let those brainwaves slow down from the beta, the fast, you know, chatter mind brainwaves down to alpha, even down to the theta level, and really connect into the inner voice of wisdom and truth. What does my body really need? What is my life? What does my life represent? Who am I? Mm-hmm. And Perfect. start to connect with what foods do we need to eat to really elevate our own vibration and our own energy level, mentally, Perfect. physically, emotionally, spiritually. Perfect. Rena, you have been fantastic. The name of the book is Easy Sugar Breakup, Break the Habits and Addictions that Control You. Rena Greenberg, founder of Wellness Seminars, Inc. Tell everybody where they can find the book and where they can find you. Oh, thank you. Wonderful. The book, goodoldamazon.com is the best place to get it. As far as my work and reading about some of my clients, and I've got lots of videos and articles and helpful information on easywillpower.com, E-A-S-Y, and then willpower.com. And then as far as the medical grade CBD products, that would be at renasorganic.com. Fantastic. Great job, Rena. Pleasure to meet you. I really enjoy the book and I love the work you're doing. So thanks for being our guest on Guys Guys Radio. Maybe we'll have you back again if you do a book on CBD. 
That'd be great. Thanks, Robert. There's never been a better time for men to be whoever they want to be, yet it's never been less clear who men really are. Guys Guy Radio, starring author Robert Manny, is on KCAA every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Whether it's relationships, sex, wellness, or spirituality, join Robert as he interviews the experts about how men and women can be at their best. Guys Guy Radio. Better men, better world. It's always a pleasure for me to uh, have an author and somebody I can relate to on the show who's written uh, fiction and nonfiction and has a love for the islands and the ocean like I do and places like Rum Key and uh, the Caribbean. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, author Fred Waitskin. Let me tell you a little bit about Fred. He's got a new book. It's called Deep Water Blues. It's a novella. It's got some nice um, uh, illustrations in it. It's about the Caribbean and um, and what's happening in the Caribbean now, so it's very timely. He's also the author of the book uh, Searching for Bobby Fisher. Searching for Bobby Fisher was released as a movie in 1993, so that's pretty cool for your first book. His other books are Mortal Games, The Last Marlin, The Dream Merchant. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Fred Waitskin. I'm delighted to be here, Robert. For the uh, benefit of our audience, why don't we start in with the, the new book, and then we'll talk about writing. So tell everybody a little bit about what is this book, Deep Water Blues, all about? Um, I own this boat. I've owned it for about 27 years. It's like a, a member of my family. It's called the Ebb Tide. Uh, my kids kind of grew up on the boat, and I'm a fisherman, and I, I, I like to fish in distant places. And about 20 or 22 or 23 years ago, I discovered this really beautiful island in the southern Bahamas called Rum Key. It was very extraordinary in many ways. It was, um, the Bahamas are kind of flat islands, and this island was lush, it was green. Um, there were only 50 or 60 people there living, living there. There was a tiny marina on the south end of the island run by this rather remarkable guy, his name is Bobby Little, and a free diver and an acrobatic airline pilot, a four-star cook, a great mechanic and a builder, really a charismatic guy, and he operated this tiny little marina resort, which very um, successful and wealthy sportsmen went to go fishing and to hang out. Uh, Mark Messier used to go there all the time, and, and uh, Jackie Onassis would go there, and uh, I discovered it on my boat, and I went there for a few years, and it was really just one of the nicest places I'd ever seen in my life. It was physically gorgeous. The fishing was marvelous. Um, it was like a dream. And, and it worked for me to, to move from New York where I was working on a book or an article for, for the New York Times and go down there and go fishing whenever I could get away. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of um, a number of years, um, terrible things began to happen to the island. It all began with a terrible accident that took place right off the island where a lot of people were killed. But the aftermath of this accident kind of colored the island. It turned, it turned the soul of the place into a very dark dangerous, violent place. And so the, 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 the evolution of the island from this gorgeous place to a place of, of um, it had a cor- kind of corrupted soul and it was abandoned by tourists. It, it seemed like such a, it seemed like a great, great um, palette for fiction. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's the reason why I was intrigued to write it. Okay. You know, it's a, I can totally relate to it because I love the Caribbean and one of my first jobs in business and in marketing, I had to travel around, visit all the distributors for uh, confectionery, for uh, 
uh, a confectionery company I was working for uh, on all the different Caribbean islands. So I got to know different ones. And then I started vacationing with some friends and family on Anguilla. We would go in the off season, like in June, uh, after the after the high rates and uh, before the hurricane season. And I, I noticed there is this uh, duality between this uh, lush paradise aspect of the islands and then this kind of sometimes this unseemly seedy underbelly and i think you captured it very well in the book uh it's interesting to me that you used the actual bobby character he is in the book it's a novella but you and the accident uh which is kind of your inciting incident is also something based on truth so how did you uh what was that little tightrope you had to walk when you were uh using uh, real people but writing fiction well, I have to tell you a little bit about my background as a writer to, to bring that story to life. Um, when I started writing fiction in my middle 20s, um, I didn't really know what fiction was. I thought it was kind of like telling fairy tales mm -hmm. and you had to invent them. And I used, to go, I used to go off to the studio and try to figure out what would be a great story I could tell. I really wanted to write novels like Tolstoy. And, and, I, had, and I thought I had to go up to my office to figure out you know, what the plot of this Tolstoy novel would be. But the only kind of plots I could think about were, were my own dreams. Um, and dreams were not very successful in the marketplace. So my first movement as a fiction writer wasn't terribly successful. And then, as you alluded to earlier, I started doing feature journalism for a lot of big magazines, um, very often the Sunday Times magazine, but I wrote for all of them at one time or another. And I discovered, um, writing feature journalism, that stories were everywhere. You know, they, 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 you didn't have to pull them out of the sky like... Yeah, that's um, true. That's so true. Like birds. Friends, friends could tell you stories and you could find stories in, um, in a newspaper. You could, you could talk to a stranger on the subway and find a story. And so I, I kind of became a hunter for stories. I became very good at finding stories and I wrote them up in a style similar to the style that I might have used writing fiction when I was writing the early fiction, except it was called nonfiction. And then when I started writing novels... I didn't, I, I, I understood that, again, you didn't have to totally create the story. The story could be a story you heard about, it, and then you amplified or changed it around. And I heard this about this story that happened on Rum Key. It was so exciting. It was so dangerous. It was full of beauty and fear and murder. I mean, it just had every element that a great story could have. But every time I tried to write it for about a year, I couldn't pull it off. And then I took this segue, and you alluded to this also earlier in your introduction. I wrote a screenplay, and I had never written a screenplay before, and I had to learn the rules of the road. And, you know, when you write a screenplay, it's very different than a novel. No right. long paragraphs, very few flashbacks, got to keep it moving ahead, short sentences, very few descriptive sentences. And after I wrote the screenplay and turned it, sent it out into the world, I went back to the novel and I knew just how to write it. It had to be fast and sharp and violent, short sentences, not long descriptions. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wrote it in 10 months so that the screenplay really informed the writing of the novel. But one last point, which gets to the heart of your question. I thought it would be an interesting thing, since I've always fooled around with this idea of fiction and nonfiction, to introduce some real characters, myself, and the illustrator of the novel that you spoke mm -hmm. about, John Mitchell, and one, or two others, mm -hmm. and one or two others into a fictional world to introduce real characters, real people like you and I into a world of fiction and see how it works. And that was kind of my idea, and I think it worked out fabulously. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you did a really nice job with it, and it is short sentences. It's a short. It, it's a novella. It's about 150 pages, and it's a it's a quick read, but it's a good read. And you left out everything that people would skip over. So I think that I haven't written a screenplay and also a TV series and pitched that stuff out there. In fact, my writing partner, he's out in Hollywood. He's making films now, big budget films. But uh, we had to learn uh, how to do an adaptation how to write completely differently because everything is in the moment. Whatever you write down, that's what the viewer is going to see. And I think that process, as you said, Fred, really helps um, fiction writers because uh, we tend to get really going on these deep dives. And uh, sometimes you don't need to go that deep to really get the point across and to keep it brisk and fast. And, and people don't have a lot of... Uh, they don't have a lot of patience nowadays when it comes to reading anyhow. So I think short and sweet actually works better. And um, listen, you followed all the rules. I, I noticed, I don't know if you did this consciously or subconsciously, but my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that a great story is what does the main character want and why can't he get it? And you seem to have embedded that seamlessly into the story. Is that is that true? Were you doing that consciously or that just kind of happened? Um. You know, I wasn't thinking of it. It wasn't in the forefront of my mind, but I think it's a good point. Um, the other point, the other po- I wanted to allude also to what you were saying about the screenplay. Just by coincidence, I wrote a number of essays last week for um, this big online publication, Quora, mm-hmm. and, one of my, and one of my essays, which had a tremendous response, um, is on the very subject. It, it talks about how, how um, writing a screenplay can positively influence you as a novelist. And most writers don't think about that. Think about mm-hmm. it that way. Think about it. writing screenplays is kind of like the lonely stepbrother to writing a novel. But I felt I found that writing the screenplay was really a learning experience. It really helped me. Yeah, definitely. You you mentioned uh, you. Uh, I, I got some questions as I always do, and sometimes I I usually write down like twenty questions of my own, and then I get ten questions from a guest and uh, or from the publicist, and I usually end up going with my own and skipping around. But I, I love your questions. And one of them was, how does intuition factor into your writing process? So I think that's a great question that people would love to know the answer to. Um, I, well, you know, I, in my writing process, um, I never write an outline from beginning to end uh, of a book. I have a, I have a sense for what I want to happen in the book, like in terms of Deep Water Blues, I had a sense for this evolution that would take place from a gorgeous Valhalla place to a violent, corrupted, murderous mm-hmm. civilization. I had a sense for that, but I didn't outline it. I never do, because I think that um, I think where the greatness in writing comes from is from what you just said. It's from your intuition, and if you fill in too many blanks before you start writing, then you never. You, you have a chance to, to not go as deeply as you can go. I think that the, the best part of writing is what I would call the pre-analytic part of writing. So you have a sense for what you want to do, and then you have to let your, your unconscious speak to you so mm-hmm. that when writing is going well, it doesn't always go well. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's a hard slog like for other writers. But when, right. my, but when my writing is going well, I'm not thinking. I'm just writing. Mm-hmm. So... Um how, how did uh, getting your first, I, I assume, searching for Bobby Fisher, I, did I get this correct? That was your first book? 
Yes, it is. It was. Okay. Yes. So you got that. That's your first. That was your first book, and then it got made into a motion picture. That must have been an overwhelming experience because there's so many aspiring writers out there, and just getting an agent is uh, considered, you know, winning the Super Bowl half the time. So how did how did that impact your life? It 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 was it was dramatic and traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I wrote the book, I mean, I was sort of like an unknown writer that was struggling to make. And I, I wrote this book that it was very it was very compelling because it was a book about my son's life, and we were involved in this great adventure of of of, of traveling around the world playing in chess tournaments. And he was so so fabulously talented, and it was wonderful to write about it and do it at the same time. And then when the movie came out. It was jarring because when we first saw the movie, this is not just me, but my wife, Bonnie and, and Josh um, and my daughter, Katya, when we first saw the movie, it seemed completely false to us because it was different than the life we lived and it was different than the book that I wrote. It was kind of steps away from the life. Now, after a few years, I came to terms with the movie and I realized that it was kind of a beautiful work of art in its own sense. Sure. And, that the, mm-hmm. and it was not the director's obligation to create exactly the book that I'd written. Right. Um, but when the movie came out, it was so, it was so it was so large, Robert. I mean, you know, everywhere I went, mm-hmm. it was it was a marquee theater. I remember once in Fort Lauderdale, I saw it playing, and I just walked in to the hell of it. I sat in the back of the theater, and at the end, everybody got up and and, and applauded. And it was daunting. Right. And frankly, frankly speaking, it was so larger than life in me. That for two years it shut me down as a writer. I couldn't operate. It just it just had me paralyzed. That's interesting. So uh, I assume you then sold the rights to the book to be made into uh, to be optioned, and you did not write the screenplay. Is that correct? No, but I w- but I, I I was a, I was an advisor. Okay. To the screenplay, it, was, right. it was part of our contract that the, that the, that the direct screenwriter would confer with me as he as he, as he worked on the script. Great. Okay, um, back to uh, Deepwater Blues. So we have the beautiful paradise, then we have the underbelly, we have the inciting incident of this accident, and we have these two main characters kind of battling it out for control of Rum Key. Um, when you wrote the book, uh, Fred, did you have an ending in mind, knowing that you knew some of these actual characters from the book in real life? Another great question. Um, no, I didn't. Um, and I, and I would say that that's really been my, my experience from the beginning. I mean, like, I'm, I'm going to answer this in sort of a segue. When I wrote Searching for Bobby Fisher, I had no idea what the ending was going to be. It kind of terrified me. And if you remember at the end of that, my son wins his first national championship at eight years old. And I said, oh, my God, I've got the ending. You know, with this book, uh, I didn't know the ending until I was about 80 percent done. And then all of a sudden I saw it crystal clear and I, and I could write it. But I kind of like that because as I, as I was explaining earlier, I really believe that the greatness in writing is pre-analytic. And if you can open your soul to the work that you're doing and feel deeply, you'll arrive at the answers. And if you're too tight-assed in your process, then, then you miss out on a lot of what you can do. So mm-hmm. I didn't know the end until I was about 30 or 40 pages from the end. Great, great answer and insight. Um, Human nature, uh, what, what is your feelings about two things? One, um, the human nature and kind of raw ambition that you write about in Deep Water Blues. And by the way, this is Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, our special guest, Fred Waitskin, Deep Water Blues. Back to my question. 
two themes come up in the book. One is uh, this uh, corruption, uh, ruthlessness of human nature and the overarching ambition uh, that seems to get in the way of proper behavior. And also the uh, what's happening now in our oceans, uh, which is such a tragedy. Could you talk about those two areas and how you kind of uh, 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 seeded the book with those themes? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that's pretty consistent in my fiction is that um, I don't, I don't really, um, I'm interested in in good guys who do bad things and mm-hmm. bad guys that do good things. Um, now that doesn't hold consistently in this novel because the bad guy, quote unquote, is a really terrible. I can't. It's hard to think about the good things that he does. But my protagonist, Bobby Little, who's a fascinating character, is also something of a pirate. And, 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 mm-hmm. and in fact, he, ref, he refers to himself as a pirate. So those two, that two, those dualities operate in, in, in my fiction always, the bad side of a good guy and the good, the good, the good part of a, of a bad guy. What, what was the second part of your question again? Remind me. Uh, the oceans. What's happening with yeah. uh, ecology down there? Great. I'm glad you. I'm glad you asked that. You know, when I started fishing um, in the Bahamas, when I was actually I started when I was 15 years old. But when I started fishing, fish were everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember one time I used to fish out of Martha's Vineyard for striped bass, and when I was about 26 or 27 years old, they had this tournament, tournament there called the Striped Bass and Bluefish Derby, and everyone wanted to win. They had about 10,000 contestants. And one year I won. I won the first place prize. And in one afternoon, I went out there and I caught a 54-pound striped bass, and I caught 10 or 12 others that were over 40 pounds. And I have a photograph of myself standing on the dock holding this huge fish, and and about 40 or 50 people surrounding me and looking at me with such admiration for having caught them. But today, when I look at that photograph, I'm disgusted with myself that I killed all of those big fish because mm-hmm. back then we thought these fish were limitless. And in the Bahamas, when I was a kid, you'd see tuna everywhere. You could walk on the backs of tuna, 700-pound tuna. They were everywhere you look. And now you can fish for days and not catch one. There used to be marlin all over the place. There's only about 10% of the large pelagic fish in the ocean as there were during Hemingway's day. So, And, and probably by the time my grand, grandchildren have their children, there won't be any more of these great fish. So that's another theme that's baked into the novel. Got it. Okay, it's Guys Guys Radio. Uh, our special guest, Fred Waitskin. Once again, the name of the novel is Deep Water Blues, illustrated by John Mitchell. Um, last question for you, Fred, uh, which I'm sure all of our aspiring authors out in our audience want to know is, what's your one best piece of advice for aspiring writers? My one piece of advice is going to sound amusing to, to your aspiring writers, but it's profound, even though it sounds simple. Walk around town with a little notebook in your shirt pocket, because I find that like a lot of the great, the best ideas that I get in my writing don't take place when I'm sitting in front of the computer tapping on the keys. They come to me when I'm on my bicycle riding home, or when I'm at, when I'm out to dinner with my, my with my son or with my wife, and all of a sudden I get uh, I get an idea. My, my family makes fun of me because they say, we can't talk to you, Fred, because you're always writing in your notebook. Because ideas jump into the mind like dreams, mm-hmm. and then you write them 
notebook. And the funny thing is, if you don't write them down in the notebook, they disappear. And they vanish so that, like dreams too, right? Yes. If, well, that would be the one piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you. When I was working, I, I wrote two books, and one of them didn't get published, but it taught me how to write a book, a novel, and the second one did. And what I did all the time was write little pieces of paper I had everywhere. I had that little notebook with me. I used to throw all the ideas in a folder, things I'd hear on the subway, something I'd, I'd, I'd notice walking through the park, whatever. And then when I would be digging through, like, how do I add some color to the scene or something? I'd pull out these little scraps of paper and half the time I would remember what they were. And uh, it was super helpful because if you don't write them down, they'd vanish. And that's just the way it is. So fantastic advice. Fred, uh, pleasure speaking with you on Guys Guys Radio. Tell everybody where they can find a book and where they can learn more about you. Fred Waitskin. Uh, you, can, you can find the book in some bookstores, but you can find it very easily on Amazon.com. And they sell it to you at a good discount. Fantastic. All right, Fred. Thanks so much for being our guest and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you, Robert. I enjoyed this very, very much. Thank you. All right, Guys Guys Radio, Robert Manny here. Let's uh, review quickly what we kind of picked up from our guests today. Um, you know, when we talked with Rena, we learned a lot about the sugar craving and how we have to kind of work with ourselves internally and do some forms of self-hypnosis and, and uh, moderation when it comes to our sugar consumption. Ultimately, it, it, it's going to come down to um, getting it out of your system and uh, as a way of eliminating the craving. And that's going to take some time. So I would say be kind to yourself, be patient with yourself, but make sure you realize that you're the one in control. And every time you get to a meal and you look at the table and you say, I could eat this or that, do your best to make the right decision. In terms of Fred's book about the Caribbean, about the uh, Bahamas, um, I think we learned, uh, besides an entertaining read, that we need to protect our reefs, we need to protect the ocean, we need to not throw garbage overboard when we're out on a boat, and we keep the plastic out of the ocean. So keep that in mind. Okay, Robert Manny, your host, KCAA, uh, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM every Wednesday on Guys Guys Radio, 8 p.m. Pacific Time. We're also on TuneIn, we're on Stitcher, we're on Spreaker. Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're worldwide, Guys Guys Radio. If you want to look us up um, and you're having a couple of people mention, hey, you know, I put in Guys Guys Radio on Spotify and I, I had to put in Guys Guys Radio Show. So we're working on the tags there, but use Guys Guys Radio Show on Spotify and iHeartRadio for now and you'll find us. But all of our podcasts are available on uh, iTunes and every place else I just mentioned, and they're all free to download over close to 370 shows now, and we've got a lot more great ones coming up. So thanks so much for being with us. This is your host, Robert Manny, and as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>